Welcome to the On the Edge podcast with your host, Scott Groves. All right, so whenever you're watching this, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. My name is Scott Groves with the On the Edge podcast, and today we're interviewing my friend, business associate, author extraordinaire, Kat Wanders, that's with a Q, Q-A-T, in case you want to look her up on Amazon, uh, where she will this year be releasing somewhere between 20 and 30 different books that she's written insane. Uh, Kat and I met because I wrote a book on uh, lead generation and a, and a business book and Kat was my editor. She was awesome. She took all 30,000 of my words, which there was probably 33,000 grammatical errors and uh, she fixed them and she made it really pretty and I was able to publish a book on Amazon and uh, was very proud of that, but 100% that does not happen without Kat Wander. So first of all, Kat, in case it's been a few months since I told you thank you, thank you for letting me get my book released. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and so let's just go straight into it, right? Because I, I, I remember how much time it wrote me to write a book on a subject matter that I was very familiar with, very passionate about, very focused on. How in God's green earth do you write 20 or 30 books that are going to be released this year? Can, can you just tell us why the process? Are these like three-page pamphlets? Or are these like novels? What, what is going on in your life? <laughs> Most of them are novels, um, between 40 and 80,000 words. And uh, the nonfiction series, those aren't done yet. They're currently all sitting around 20,000, but the, that series, I can do nonfiction a lot faster. So those will come out, who knows? I'm trying to do them like two weeks apart. But those, I'd say, will probably be about 30 to 40. We'll say 30,000 words. They're all about editing. And then I have a business series that's a, the first book will be coming out this year. That one will be about 60,000. So no, they're not short. <laughs> yeah, and for your your average reader who d doesn't know this space or doesn't know word count, you know, most business books, you know, real famous ones like The Go-Giver, The One-Minute Manager, Who Moved My Cheese, there's somewhere between 10 and 15,000 words. More in-depth business books will be 25 to 35,000 words. The, the final Harry Potter move, uh, uh, Harry Potter books are probably 50 to 60,000 words. So when you talk about, you know, 20 novels, 40,000 to 80,000 words each, that is an insane undertaking. And have these all been in your mind for a decade and you're just finally getting them down on paper? Or are these new thoughts and new series? It's a mix of both. The nonfiction stuff, like my editing books, those are because they need to fill a need. I have an editing business, so um, a lot of them are like compilations of questions I get all the time that I want to put somewhere for people to read, hopefully, and make my life easier. And then also just to help authors out and kind of see where um, they can make improvements in their writing. Uh, the business book, Living an Unedited Life, that's kind of my journey and the vulnerability Actually, if you remember when you and I were on stage together for self-publishing school, um, everybody was just really um, appreciative of how blunt we were <laughs> about just, you know, the shitty side of running a business. And um, I get emails several times a week about like, oh, wow, you're going through all these health problems. Oh my gosh, you have cancer. Oh my gosh, you had a stroke. Like you've done all these things. You're burning out. You neglect your daughter. Tell me more. And there we go. So I put together actually a book of like what it really took to build that business and how I, other people can avoid going that route. The fiction side of things, uh, yeah, it's a mix. Some of them I've had for a long time. The Mythic Freak Chronicles is like a 
supernatural circus series where everybody's descended from different types of gods. And then the rest of them, they just kind of come to me. I have a big imagination. <laughs> so that's how, oh, and I've co-authored several with my daughter who has an even bigger imagination than I do. That's amazing. How old your daughter these days? I, I have not had the opportunity to meet her. I only see her on social media. How old is she? Mm-hmm. She just turned 12. Just turned 12. And how many books has she put her thoughts or penmanship into? Uh, your 12-year-old daughter, I know, is releasing a couple books this year with your assistance. Uh, how many How many books is she on? Uh, well, she has, she has one of her own that's published. There's three more in that series that are written, but they need to be kind of rewritten because, you know, she's... She, she started writing these when she was eight. So it's been an adventure. And then she and I have, oh my gosh, actually we have three series that we've co-authored. So a trilogy, another trilogy, and then a quadrilogy. So for 10 others, so 14 total. Yeah. So, so somebody right now, three minutes into the podcast is Googling you and they're like, wait a minute, Cat Wanders with a Q. <laughs> Um, she has uh, Searching for Venus, which is a, you know, vagabond lesbian memoir. And then you've got this <laughs> Owl Shifter series, which is kind of like a risque Harry Potter Twilight, maybe young adult, but starts to get into some, you know, teenager and young 20 sex. And then you've got a whole chronicle of books that are just like pure, unadulterated, I would call it romance novels, sex novels. I don't know. Um, and then you're writing business books and then you're, you're, you know, a, a single mom. It's like, you got a lot going on and a lot on your plate. So how does one wake up and be like, today's going to be my business book day, or today's going to be my BDSM author day, or today I'm just going to be a mom. Like what, <laughs> what in the fuck does your life look like? <laughs> kind of just like that, actually. So, <laughs> um, I don't, I don't really do deadlines anymore. Um, like I mentioned earlier, like I've had I've had strokes now. I actually just had another stroke uh, two weeks ago. So it's, this is like getting ridiculous with how much I've overworked myself. So I've scaled back. Um, I have my editing business, which I have my chief editor running. That makes a big difference. So I just have more time to really put into getting these books done because these books will bring income forever if I keep producing them. So I just kind of had to set aside time to focus. I have kind of a writing schedule, but I wake up, I basically need to be getting a lot of sleep because you know, health issues and I'm a bodybuilder. So I work out a lot and um, I wake up, I write for about four hours. Then I usually go lift, do conditioning, I have a treadmill desk, so I'm always, I'm like speed walking the entire time I'm editing and that keeps my brain a little fresher too and I can get more done. So I usually bust out like, you know, 12 miles a day on my treadmill while I'm doing all that. But yeah, four hours of writing, then lifting, and then I come back and I do all all that admin crap. So I, on average, I get 10,000 words written a day and 10,000 words edited. Sometimes if I'm not like really in the groove, I only get like 5,000, but 5,000 a day is my absolute minimum of words I have to get written. And then 10,000 is my minimum of words that I edit. So I do edit my own books before I send them to my editing team. So I am usually writing one and editing a different book. So I'm using two different parts of my brain, writing and editing, but those are also two different stories. I'm not editing the same book that I wrote that day. So usually... Like right now I'm 
writing the final book in the series I'm co-authoring with my daughter, but I'm editing one of my business books. So, and I'm not currently taking, really taking projects for clients at the moment. My team is handling that. That's awesome. And, you know, when you talk about writing books for people that aren't, aren't in this world or they didn't come from, you know, Chandler Bolt self-publishing school or whatnot, can you explain to people when you write a book, like, are you self-publishing them? Do you have some literary agent? Is the goal one day to be, I don't even know what the word is, sponsored, picked up, um, published by, by Penguin Random House? Or what, what, does the, what is the ecosystem of being a writer? Because I know you have your business where you, you, you make money for editing, but you want to get to that point where your writing and the sales of your book substantiates and, and you know, suffices for 100% of your income and your living. But can you explain to people that don't know this system and don't know the cartel called Amazon, which is an awesome opportunity for anybody who wants to self-publish, but they take their pound of flesh. Can you explain how all of this works? <laughs> That's a big question, Scott. <laughs> um, so no, I can't really explain how all of that works, but I can explain what I'm doing. So I used to work for one of the big five. I got my start in traditional publishing. I'm not going to name the publishing house I, get I worked it. for because I don't really have nice things to say about them. <laughs> but I did work for one of the big five um, as an editor and I, I know what those authors get. And um, like, who, is it, it's Stephen King. I wanna say Stephen King even has to, what is it he has to do to like still actually like pay his bills? He like, the authors are not wealthy. JK Rowling, she's an anomaly, we don't talk about her. But <laughs> that's a whole separate thing. But I mean, there was, I went to college when I got my, a literary degree with um, a very big author and he's you know he has a little apartment in the Bronx like it's it's not easy to make a living as a traditionally published author and because I actually want money <laughs> I will probably always self-publish I have no desire to get picked up by an agent um, there's a possibility like if I met a kind of hybrid publisher who was willing to take over everything, run my ads. Like if they wanted to kind of take over and run the ship, I might consider something like that. Um, I do know someone who has done that with success because it freed up her schedule so much that she could spend more time writing more books. But no, I like self-publishing. And um, for me, that's where the money is. For a lot of people I know, I have a lot, a lot of author friends who are making six figures and above in their author careers. So that's, as the self-published author, you get to keep all your royalties. Well, aside from what Amazon takes from you, I am in the process of looking into making all my books wide now. I have never really considered that before because I do make a lot of money from Kindle Unlimited from page reads. I am um, considering branching out though, Kobo, iBooks, um, Barnes and Noble, all those things because I've noticed that my wide sales for some of my yoga books, which I don't talk about my yoga books too much anymore because they're just not really what I'm doing for a living, but my yoga books have been going wide and it's getting a lot of traction in Barnes and Noble and a few other places. So it really depends on the genre and what you're trying to do. But for fiction specifically, I really recommend self-publishing. It's just, it's so just a better way to go. Can I you just explain? I'm going to be... Can you explain for the audience what self-publishing means? Like everybody knows you can go to Amazon and you can buy a book. My book is quote unquote self-published on Amazon. Can you explain to the audience what does that mean to be a self-published author on Amazon? As a self-published author, it basically just means you are the publisher. You published it yourself. Um, 
it can still be owned by a publishing house. Like I actually technically own a publishing house. Wandering Words Media is a publisher. So I do have an imprint and the logo that people can publish through my company and then I own their ISBN. Um, that's a whole bunch of jargon I won't get into because <laughs> it's not freaking necessary right now. But basically I am in control of everything as a self-published author. So when you self-publish, you have the last say on your cover design. You have the last say on how it's formatted on the inside. It's up to you to make sure all those typos are gone. So you have to hire an editor or better yet, a team of editors because one editor can't find all the, one editor can't find all the typos. Even a whole team can't, even in traditional publishing on average, I've, I have like a whole thing of statistics on my website. On average, a very well edited book, meaning it's gone through four editors, a developmental editor, a content editor, a copy editor, and a proofreader. A well edited book that's been through all four of those people will still only be 95 to 96% error free. So that means you're still looking at like several typos left over. So every published book ends up with them, but you're responsible for doing all that. So you have to pay everyone everything to get the book published yourself you upload it to amazon on yourself and then amazon does what's called print on demand so they send the ebook out to people but they will also print out the books for you so say someone goes on to amazon and orders one of my books i don't have to do anything i didn't have to buy copies amazon will print that book as soon as the person orders it and send it out to whoever ordered it and it's great because you don't have to worry about you know buying a thousand copies and then not selling them because that would be humiliating and really suck. <laughs> so, so let's say somebody is very interested in your book, Searching for Venus, Vagabond Lesbian Memoir, um, which I still have to read because I know some of it is autobiographical and some of it is fictional and some of it's a lot of fun. Um, but if you're into that genre and I want to read this book, I go, on, um, I go on Amazon, I buy the book. You wrote the book, you did the cover art or you paid somebody to do the cover art. You have complete control over the content of that book. You can update it. You can change it. It's yours. You don't have to run it by anybody. It can say whatever it wants as long as it gets through the Amazon filter and you're not saying anything horrifically, you know, racist or whatever the case may be. Mm -hmm. um, and then I buy the book Searching for Venus for 20 bucks. As a self-published author who has to go through some channel like iBooks or Amazon or whatnot, are, are you cool telling me about the economics of what that means if I buy a book from you for 20 bucks? Well, it depends on if you bought the ebook or the print book. Well, if, if you spent 20 bucks on my book, that was the print book. So I, hmm, I don't actually know what I get on that unless I, I should have pulled that up. I could have actually looked that up right this second, but it's after printing fees. So for a print book, Amazon will pay to print it. So that's probably with, and keep in mind searching for Venus. It's a, it's a big fat book. Like that's my longest one. I think it's like $8 in printing fees. And then Amazon keeps 30% of your royalties. So after like the eight or it might actually be like 10 in printing fees because that book is so fat. So we'll say $10 in royalties. So if you were to buy it for $10 um, and then they deduct shipping and stuff too, I make probably like $4 on the book after Amazon's deducted printing fees, shipping, and their portion of the royalties on an ebook. Actually, it might be 60% on print books. God, I should really know that. I'm sorry. But <laughs> no, but I, I mean, this sounds but, vaguely familiar. When I, when I look at, you know, I've, I've sold 220 copies of my book and then I get, you know, a thousand bucks, which is cool because if the Amazon platform didn't exist, I would not have got a thousand bucks. But between whatever they're juicing me for their printing and shipping costs, plus their royalties, you know, they're, they're taking 
whatever it is. Two, it's definitely two more thirds. than half. Yeah, it's definitely more than half. I, that, that's, I guess that's what we're getting to, right? They're, they're definitely yeah. taking more than half for the printing, the shipping, and the royalty. For the print books. But ebooks, on the other hand, that's where most authors make all their money. So Amazon has a like a little window. If you're so obviously your book can't be free; they have to charge something. So ninety nine cents. Um, you can do free promos, but they're only allowed to last for five days, and then they show it to more people, so your book gets seen. So I put all of my books on a free promo once a month, or well, every time they allow me. So um, you're allowed to do different. Like I'll do a Kindle countdown deal again, jargon I won't get into, but like I do promos and Amazon lets you do that for free as often as they let me just because it gets me up in the rankings again, because they show it to more people, but a print book. Yes. You don't get very much on that, but an ebook 99 cents is the lowest it can go. And then I want to say it's 99 cents to two ninety nine. If you have it between that window, they take 70% of your royalties and that sucks. So I only allow my books to be less than $2.99 if it's on promo just to get up in the rankings. But after $2.99, if your book is more than that, you get 70% of your royalties. That's actually a pretty good deal. So all of my books are between $2.99 and I think $6.99 is my most expensive book. Um, Searching for Venus might be more but I don't think so I think searching for Venus is only five dollars ebook so yeah it and that adds up because people read ebooks like crazy and if you're on Kindle Unlimited you get paid per page read which is for my fiction books that adds up a lot I don't get much as far as Kindle Unlimited page reads for my nonfiction, but for my fiction I'd say half of my income comes from that and that's I mean granted so many of my books are fiction and I have multiple pen names. So, so your erotica books are quite the page turner. People on Kindle unlimited are, are actually reading through it and, uh, and racking up the page count where you're getting a, de- a decent chunk of change. Yeah. My erotica. Oh my God. That one's my house just made a weird noise. Sorry. I just, I got surprised, but uh, yeah, my erotica has a great page read, um, page read through rate. Those books are all pretty short. Like you asked about if they were full length novels, the erotica stuff, honestly, I can keep it like 20,000 words and just produce a series. People buy a box set. I priced it at 99 cents, but usually they'll get it on Kindle unlimited anyway, read through it and then buy it for 99 cents. Like it just, it's, it's an interesting, interesting art. And I don't run ads to any of that stuff. My pen names, I don't run ads to. I only run ads to the stuff under my own name because <laughs> that's the stuff I'm comfortable with people associating with me. Right, so. right. So we'll get, we'll get a list of uh, all your books and pen names that you are comfortable sharing and we'll put them in the comments for anybody that wants to dive deeper into Cat's world. But, you know, one of the things that I really appreciated about you, and, and we met through Chandler Bolt's self-publishing school, which I highly recommend for anybody that's looking to self-publish their own book and either write their memoirs or they have an idea they want to flesh out in book form. Um, but, you know, when we met, I was very happy that self-publishing school and then you as my editor, who I paid money to, I think I got a pretty good deal, by the way. Um, you were very honest with you me. Did. You said, <laughs> thank you. Um, it, was my, it was my glowing <laughs> smile on Zoom. Um, you were very honest with me where you said like, hey, let's first talk about the reason you're writing the book because 99.9% of authors don't make money off their book. They're doing it for exactly. you know aspirational purposes or inspirational purposes or they want a calling card in a particular business area. 
you know, we don't need to talk specifically about how much money you make or how much income you want to make, but you did mention that six figures. We can. Um, okay. So that six <laughs> we figures. We can talk about it. <laughs> Perfect. So how many books do you think you have to have out there, you know, spinning off reoccurring revenue to get to six figures, you know, to make, to make a hundred grand a year in residual income for work that you've already done in the past? You know, of course, there's the outliers. There's the Stephen Kings and the Malcolm Gladwells and the J.K. Rawlings. But for your average kind of just, you know, Cat Wanders as a prolific writer, you're you're doing four hours a day of work on that. How many books or series do you think you need to get up to to be like, all right, cool, I've got this residual payout coming from Amazon and of a hundred grand a year for the rest of my life as long as I do the right things and maybe add a series here or there. I can swear, right? Of course, That's you can fine. swear a lot. You need a fuck ton of books to make six figures. Um, most six-figure authors I know, correction, all, all six-figure authors I know are fiction authors. I do know a lot of very successful business book authors, but that's not necessarily from royalties. So like Chandler is a really good example of that. He was kind of an anomaly. He entered the self-publishing world fairly early on and just killed it with his genre. Um, I I don't know what he's making in royalties now, but I can guarantee you that's not his main source of income. He he did do very well. Like I think he said he made like 6,000 something his first month in royalties. I, that's, I, my first nonfiction books did really well, but I didn't make that. I think I made like three or 4,000 my first month. And that stayed consistent for like four months. And then it just dropped we're not talking like a fade like slow fade down it went from like four thousand oh two hundred dollars <laughs> like it, right it dropped and it was it, it just was like nope we're done now because the the big hurrah ended so i put out another book i'm like oh, okay and then it went back up and that was when i realized yeah okay so the only way to really keep making money is to keep writing books i didn't really enjoy the nonfiction stuff as much like with what I was doing because like long story short with that I was doing coaching for people in chronic pain with yoga because I was a yoga therapist which I'm not anymore and it was helping people but that just wasn't what I wanted to be doing I really wanted to be writing and I really love writing fiction so when I first started putting out fiction I studied it for a while first uh, my fiction books my YA stuff, they aren't doing that well right now because I haven't been promoting. I got banned from Amazon for a while. That was fun. That's a separate story. Uh, but the erotic stuff, like without ads, that started going pretty quickly. And as long as a book keeps coming out every few weeks, it stays at the top of Amazon's algorithm and I just keep making money. So I'd say this time last year, I was making about $5,000 a month. Um, I'm not making that now, even though I have more books because I didn't put out very many books last year. So now I'm, I'm only making like 2000 a month, which just isn't enough for, right. you know, living expenses. So the more books you put out though, people see your name, you keep putting it out there. You say at the top of the algorithm in Amazon, it just keeps going business books. I mean, that's really hard to do. Who's going to write 40 business books and have people read them. I mean, you're just going to end up saying the same thing over and over again. There are some authors out there who've done it. I've seen series of business books. I have a guy actually who comes to me for all of his editing. I think he has probably 30 books by now. I, 
I've edited them all. They are all pretty much saying the same thing, <laughs> but they all do pretty well because they do know him and trust him as an author. So people keep buying his books and each one is a little bit different. So he's the only one I've seen really do that well in the nonfiction world. So it can be done. Yeah. You know, I've seen on nonfiction, somebody writes a book about whatever, building teams, hiring executive assistants, um, you know, learning how to integrate technology into their business. And what they're really doing is they're writing the book as a calling card to become a consultant or give a $20,000 keynote speech or build a coaching program. Oh, okay. So it feels like the business books are more like an, uh, a means to an end. Whereas it sounds like in the fiction, I until you hit this critical mass of, you know, somebody discovers Stephen King and goes back and reads 30 of his past novels, until you hit that critical mass of fandom, you got to just keep pumping out content to keep your fans happy. Is that, is that fair? That is pretty much accurate. I, yeah. And you have to have a backlist. So as a fiction author, great. You wrote a book. You might make a little bit of money on it, like a very little, you better keep writing books. And the thing is, I'm a big fan of the rapid release schedule. So there's two schools of thought. The author writes the book. If the book does well, they write the next book but then you keep your readers waiting for months and Amazon readers are hungry, hungry readers. Like they really want books and they want them now. Most people won't even buy a book unless they know it's a complete series. So now that Amazon has allowed us to put up pre-orders, you can put up book one in a series and then put all the others on pre-order so they can keep buying them. But even still authors are going to finish the book. There's so many books on Amazon. If you don't have book two ready for them right then, unless they really, really loved your book and they're waiting anxiously, they're never going to read book two. And then your yeah. read through rate, rate drops. So, so I understand the school of thought that if book one does well, you write the next one. I write the whole series though. And then I, I wait until the series is done and then boom, 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 boom. I put them out two weeks apart so that the readers always have the next book coming and it keeps them on their toes. It just improves the read through rate. There are, not everyone does that. That's how I do it. But I know for me with authors, I like, unless I really love that author and I have like a handful, maybe 10 authors that no matter what they put out, I will read everyone else. If that book isn't ready when I finish the first one, I'm probably never going to read it. So yeah, maybe Chris can look this up for us. There's an author who does uh, the Joe Ledger series and I've kind of gotten in the same habit. Like I listen to books on Audible, um, but if I go to a fiction story that somebody recommends or, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's all fiction. If I go to a fiction story I, I enjoy or a genre that gets recommended, I love a lot of post-apocalyptic stuff. So like the Helldiver series um, is a really good one. And then the Joe Ledger series. Joe Ledger is basically like, think Born Identity meets X-Files. But when I discovered it and when I was recommended to it, I checked first on Audible to make sure there was a series of five or six books because I'm like, well, if I really fall in love with this and I commit to a 15-hour listen on Audible and I love it, I want the next, you know, the next couple seasons to be ready to go. I don't want to wait from April into November for season two to come out. That's for the birds, man. We're in an Amazon generation. I want to watch seven seasons in one weekend while I get fat with yep. bonbons. And now books are the same way. So, um, yeah, who does the Joe Ledger series, Chris? Were you able to look that up? Um, yeah, look that up for me. The Joe Ledger series, uh, uh, Chris is smoking a cigarette, so he's, he's not as focused as he normally is. Um, but yeah, it's, it's interesting. I like your methodology because if I stumble across your, you know, Al Shifter series and I, Jonathan Mayberry, yeah, Jonathan Mayberry, that guy kicks ass. He writes some of the best like post-apocalyptic and then like fiction meets, 
um, military. It's just it's really great stuff, Jonathan Mayberry. So you'll you'll like him. I, I think I'm eleven books into the Joe Ledger series, and now even though he's given me 150 hours of enjoyment in those books, I'm kind of pissed that the next is not ready to go. I'm like, you left us on book 10 or 11 with a, uh, you know, with a cliffhanger, and now you've pawned off all these short stories to these other authors. This is bullshit. I want the next 500-page book. Ah, <laughs> ah that, I hate that. <laughs> you just, you hit a nerve when you said that. The short stories with the other, Why? Why do they do that? Yeah, why? I don't need to go back and listen to book 1.5 if I'm already on book 9. Like, I can't go back in my mental process. You know, these characters are dead or whatever. I don't need the short stories. So um, that, and then the same thing with the Helldiver series. I've got a buddy. Um, I think the Helldiver series, maybe Chris can look this up as well. I think that's by Sands, Sansbury Smith or something. I can't remember. Um, the Helldiver series has like eight books. And to your point, I just forget about it. And then all of a sudden, one of my buddies will be like, hey, did you read the new Helldivers book? And then I'm like, yeah, not yet. I want to, but I know it's going to be another year before it comes out. Nicholas Sanbury Smith. Yeah, Nicholas Sanbury Smith. Another great author oh. for like post-apocalyptic stuff. I've read some of those, actually. There's, yeah. I, love I love like dystopian, post-apocalyptic, cyberpunk, zombie anything, steampunk, and I love sci-fi. And anything with lots of sex, especially if there's unicorns. Really nice. Like so we can go one yeah. of two directions here. One, uh, you can choose to tell us about the story about why you got banned from Amazon. That might be fun. Or two, maybe talk to us a little bit about the uh, research methods for erotica books. The what methods? The you research methods. Research right. methods for erotica books or why you got banned from Amazon. Um, honestly, getting banned from Amazon wasn't that interesting of a story. I <laughs> it, was, it was just... It was their mistake completely, and I got bent over and raped for it. So it was completely their mistake. They just, um, yeah, they locked me out of my account, and then they told me to start a new account with the same email, and you're not allowed to have two accounts. So um, they told me to start with the same email, though, and since it was the same email, that it would be fine. And it was not fine, and then I got banned. And I've actually been noticing in a lot of reader groups I'm a part of, or author groups I'm part of, that they've been banned banning people's accounts left and right three today I saw posts for and they're like Amazon um deleted my entire account and I don't know why because when you delete get an account deleted I lost all my royalties for that month too so I had to like really fight to get back in there and they're deleting people's accounts who didn't do anything wrong it's just a mistake it's so weird I was I was gonna say there's not yeah. a so there's not, not a uh, there's not a filter here they're not trying to use censor certain type of con you know content or as we've been seeing in social media certain political views or whatnot they're not trying to get rid of people this is just a matter of like dumb luck somebody hit the wrong server and it deleted a bunch of people's does that mean it gets rid of all your reviews and everything yeah so oh. um i was lucky because my account got i just got locked out they didn't delete my account so um it's actually in the process of merging everything over to one so I'm watching my books really carefully because like I said, I have multiple pen names and you're only allowed to have a certain amount of pen names for one Amazon account. So um, luckily my daughter is also an author. So she also has <laughs> her own account with other pen names and I'm kind of utilizing hers too. So we're, we together, we have like uh, six, I guess, but um, 
yeah, I'm watching the migration process very carefully because I have had an issue where I, I moved one book over and merged it with another. And I did get the reviews moved, but they disappeared for a while. So I'm hoping the people who actually got their accounts deleted are going to be okay. Because <laughs> I've heard horror stories, but I've also heard um, like one of my favorite authors who does a bunch of book marketing stuff. I follow him all the time, Derek Murphy. He had he had like a post about how he got banned from Amazon and he lost all his royalties for that month and all his reviews and everything but he was able and they like basically sent him all these emails that horrified him but he got it all worked out fairly easily once he talked to a human so it could go either way the posts I'm seeing right now the people are freaking out because they can't get anyone in support to help them so I don't know. I've always had good experiences with Kindle support. Like the guy who helped me today was delightful. His name was Alistair and he was just great. He had the sexy accent and he was so helpful. So, like, and he got everything figured out for me. It was delightful. And I didn't even have to show him my tits. So all in all, it was good. But <laughs> hopefully the people on the posts that are freaking out are just freaking out for no reason. Yeah. That's all I can hope for. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I, I think I've read some some industry stats somewhere, you know, Amazon is responsible for pick a number, 75, 80, 85% of all self-published books. You know, I don't 80 80% of all self-published books. And, mm -hmm. you know, look, it's it's their business. They can do what they want. But we have seen in some other areas of social media and Amazon servers and whatnot that if all of a sudden, I don't know, some Christian conservative takes over on the board of directors of Amazon decides, you know what? Uh, yeah, we don't really like uh, erotica and we sure don't like any erotica that might drift into the young adult category. Um, we're just going to go ahead and ban all of the books that we don't like there. Is this ever on your mind of like, oh man, yes. this, this one company rules a large chunk of my income. Like I need to build an audience over here or I need to have a backup mm -hmm. or, you know, I, again, it's a private company. It can do whatever it wants, but I do get into a little bit of a fearful mindset of like, have we allowed as a country, as a society, as a government to allow these companies to get so big that like, yeah, they can do what they want, but if they're monopolistic and they're the only game in town, like does Kat deserve to be on there publishing her books? Cause you know, maybe that's a, maybe that's an issue of free speech. And like the libertarian side of my brain is going nuts right now, even as I'm saying this, cause it's a company, it can do whatever it wants. But um, you know, that I fear for people like you that if one day you're on the other side or the wrong side of the political spectrum, they can just take away your living. Like what, what's your backup plan or what's your thoughts on this? Or does not, this not even into your mind? I mean, my backup plan is I can do porn. But um, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> mostly, <laughs> mostly kidding. I, but I mean, that's actually the same thing. The big industries rule your income. Like, like even cam girls. I have a really good friend who's a cam girl and it's the same thing for her. She has months where I'm struggling with Amazon. She's struggling with getting her pay payout from Pornhub. Like it's really, that's just kind of how the world works. I try not to stay in a fearful mindset. I, for the most part, I'm pretty good about it, but no, it crosses my mind, especially in all these author groups where every day I'm being bombarded with posts from people who are having it happen to them. So like one woman said today, cause just today I was reading how she got her account deleted for doing nothing wrong. No one would help her. And she says, it really upsets me that Amazon completely controls my entire career. And it's like, it's just a person they don't care anything about. And it's true because, you know, she's just another author to them. Like, it doesn't matter that, you know, her children might starve. And okay, that's obviously probably exaggerating. But, but seriously, like people who make 
their entire income from Amazon. That's scary as hell if you really think about it. And that's another reason I've been thinking about going wide with my books because it's, they're the guru. And actually I think the number is 90% of all, and it's not just of all self-published books are on Amazon. I think it's 90% of books sold in the world are sold on Amazon, I think is actually the number. I could be wrong, but I'm I, like, I'm pretty sure <laughs> that's what I've been told. It's there they monopolize. It's like, they're huge. So yeah, we'll, yeah. Have, we'll have Chris um, look up what percentage of self-published books and books go on to Amazon. But, um, yeah, it's, it's a little worry, worrisome. Can you explain going wide? Like, does that just mean, I mean, is it as simple as I'm going to upload my book to these other four channels or is there some legalese or is there some opting in opting out that has to happen? What does that mean to go wide? Yes. <laughs> so just yes it depends on if you're already published if you're already published on amazon like all my books are exclusive to amazon right now um it allows me to be in kindle unlimited it allows me to run promos overall amazon's been very good to me in my author career so i'm exclusive to them that means my books can't be sold anywhere else um they do have a expanded distribution option where they sell your books elsewhere and I've been watching the expanded distribution numbers on my nonfiction, and those are really good. So bookstores are buying my books, um, just all kinds of things. I also own all my ISBNs, again, with the jargon. But to go wide, you have to own your book's ISBN. So the ISBN is um, basically you have an imprint. The book is published by this person. Mine is my publishing company. And I own that. I own the imprint. I own the ISBN. I own all the rights to my book. It's mine. So I can remove it from um, can, um, Kindle Select, Kindle Drive. Wow, words escaping me. I Amazon, can it whatever. I being exclusive to Amazon and go wide elsewhere. So that means you can start applying. You have to go through Ingram Spark instead of KDP. So KDP is Kindle Direct Publishing, and they're the ones who do print on demand for you. And um, most people do both. They do Ingram Spark and KDP. So everything selling on Amazon, they sell through KDP. And then everything in all the other platforms, they go through Ingram Spark. And Ingram Spark does charge you. And I, I honestly don't really find their quality to be that great in my experience. However, they do allow you to go wide because bookstores will only take you if you're selling through Ingram Spark and you have your own ISBN and everything. So it is, if you already have books that are exclusive to Kindle, it is a process to go wide. But if you start out getting your ISBN, going through Ingram Spark, getting everything set up, it's way easier to go wide. Yeah. We have a, we have a friend who will remain nameless because uh, he likes to stay very apolitical and does not get very opinionated on anything because of the genre of books that he sells. But I remember when he wanted to go into bookstores, it was this huge clusterfuck because of, you know, what he committed to with Amazon. So now he's in this weird limbo where like, well, if it's out of the country, he can sell direct hardcover to bookstores in airports and he's crushing it. But in the US, he's still only available on Amazon. And it's just, it's weird, this political network, which I guess happens anytime something gets big. Just the fact that there's so much bureaucracy in this world. And you're like, dude, I just want to write books and sell books. <laughs> but um, for him, he's had to really, you know, get get attorneys and whatnot and really traverse this this world of publishing. And it's it's just, it's like any other business, right? So many layers. Yeah. Yeah, I, it is. <laughs> I want to go full circle back to your schedule, your motivation, because, you know, 
there's some people like me who can't even avoid drinking a Dr. Pepper if I say that I don't want to drink Dr. Pepper. And there's sure 99% of our audience who's like, oh yeah, I get up with the best of intentions and discipline. I'm going to do this. I'm going to knock it out. And then the day gets in my way. And then I start working on this. And then I get shiny object syndrome. And then I go over here. But from what you said, the first four hours of your day, it's like, you know, maybe I make breakfast for my daughter. And then it's four hours straight of writing. Like, how do you stay committed to that without being like, ah, I'm going to go check out Netflix. I wonder what's happening with that billing on Amazon. I mean, just the idea of staying focused at all to write 5,000 words, 10,000 words a day, much less every day for years. Is something wrong with you? Like, how can you, how can you have that level of focus and maybe tell us some tricks about your day to set that up? A lot of things, a lot of things are wrong with me. I, now, keep in mind the whole shiny object syndrome things happen. That that stuff happens to me too. Like that's not, I am not like little, little miss productivity over here. I, I am productive though. Oh my God. I can't believe I didn't even, I don't even have the planner right here. I, I didn't even bring this up about um, like the popular books of mine. I put out a productivity planner. Actually, I designed one because you and I started talking from the beginning about how much we love planners. So I designed one. It's kind of based on the productivity planner, the Panda planner, the living well, spending less planner. And it had like tracks your workouts, your finances and your whole day. You set goals for the year, move it down to the month, the week, the day. It's like, I, I love my planner <laughs> so much. Like I, I made it because I was tired of using so many. So that planner really freaking helps me because it helps me divide everything like my must do's, my should do's and my want to do's. And like in the Panda planner, it has your whole day mapped out and you have the little slots where you write like this hour you're doing this. That never fucking works. Like it never, ever works. I'll be in my Panda planner, which I don't use anymore because I have my own planner but like the time blocking did not work for me and I've read all these books like four hour work week the one thing it's all great my one thing is getting my 10,000 words written I do I do the one thing but the whole time blocking thing it doesn't work for me I, I need to get enough sleep I've learned like really that's probably my number one goal get enough sleep so if I don't fall asleep until 2 a.m. I'm not going to force myself to get up at six. So I will sleep until I feel okay. The fact that I work from home and with remote learning, my daughter, you know, she's home too. So I don't have to get her up and go to school. There is that perk. But um, yeah, I, I, I sleep. Sleep is my number one priority. And then I start my day according to when I wake up. So sometimes I do get myself up at six. Normally I wake up at like eight though. And then um, my... My workout, see, things have changed <laughs> since COVID. <laughs> so my life is different now than it used to be. So like now I have to schedule my workouts at a certain time. So no matter whether I'm done with my words or not, I have to go to that workout at that time. <laughs> I can't just go when I feel like it anymore. So I don't like that. I'll just say, <laughs> I don't like scheduling my day. However, um, the four hours is probably the one thing I'm very adamant about. And I work about 10 hours a day, seven days a week. So I am, people wonder <laughs> like, but, like dating people, I date multiple people at once and I'm sure we'll get into that, but like trying to date multiple people and they're like, I'm sorry. So can you come over like tomorrow evening? I'm like, well, I'll be working until probably 10 o'clock at night. And it's just, that's my life. The thing is I do it and I 
enjoy it. It's not like I'm like, oh, I have to get up and work. I love getting up to work. I look forward to working, opening my computer every day. The way I stay focused with my writing, I have one device that I write on and I don't get notifications on it. I turn everything on do not disturb. When I'm writing, I'm writing. Um, I have a little, and I'm on a treadmill <laughs> when I'm writing and I do a mix between typing it and dictating. I use Dragon dictation software because it's the most accurate, but I do a mix of the two because for some reason, like I can't just dictate for four hours straight. It just tires me out. So like, I'll maybe dictate for 30 minutes. I'll type for 30 minutes. I'll dictate for a, an hour. I'll type for 10 minutes. It, but for four hours, it usually takes about four hours to get like 8,000 words in. And then I'll usually try to finish that other 2,000 so I can get to that 10K point. I'll try to do that after my workout. I don't eat very much. I do meal prepping. I have my meals delivered and things. So like, I don't cook. I, I don't clean. Like I don't do any of that stuff myself. So um, that's how I stay so productive. My daughter honestly gets neglected a lot. She, um, that's, that's just true. Like I am a single mom. It's just her and me. Um, she does spend half the year with her dad now since schools have gone remote. This has actually been interesting because instead of just having her gone on the breaks, cause like she would leave for all the school breaks and the summer. So I would get a shit ton of work done while she was gone. Cause it was just me. And like, I had all this time to myself. Well, now she's with her dad for half the year. So I'm completely alone right now. She's not here. She's in Oregon. So I'm way more productive than when she's here. So because she's gone for so much longer, that actually does allow me to spend more time when she comes back. So yeah, all of last year, only had her for half the year and we're doing it again this year with the remote learning thing which has been beneficial so yeah I'm not perfect <laughs> and I do get distracted I don't have a tv so like Netflix doesn't distract me and um yeah that's so, pretty wait, much all it, I can think of if you don't have a tv it doesn't sound like you have much time in your day to read for pleasure where are you coming up with the thought process or idea or character development or conversation to write the books. Like I, I find you to be a very intelligent person. Uh, I find you to have a very vivid imagination based on a few uh, conversations we've had. A lot of very random life experience, um, you know, personally, professionally, <laughs> sexually, we can talk about some of that in a little bit. But um, where, in, where do you come up with, you know, thoughts for 20 books? Because uh, one of the one of the criticisms that I get from close friends of mine is they're like, dude, you take in so much content. Like I love if I'm driving down the street for Starbucks, I'm listening to a podcast in the evening. You know, I'm either watching a new type of television show documentary or reading a book. I love having these unique conversations, but there's no way I could come up with enough content for for five books, much less 20. So what is going on in that sadistic mind of yours that mm -hmm. you have uh, you have enough thought or you have enough energy to produce that much content? The ideas just come to me. Like, I don't know how to explain it. It's just so easy for me to think of stories. So like I have, like I told you, I have approximately 30 books coming out this year. I actually have in the works a hundred, I think when I counted last through my outlines, 150 that are either outlined or in some sort of rough draft form already. So I have 150 books coming out in the next few years, however I get them done. Uh, the process that I use is fairly fast because like I said, if I can get 10,000 words a day, it's, it is possible, like I'll get them all out. Um, sometimes I have someone help me outline. So like I'll have the concept and I can't quite 
like get it into an because I'm a I'm a very adamant outliner. <laughs> I don't write by the seat of my pants. I outline the shit out of my story. So like I know everything is going to happen. Sometimes my outlines are like 10,000 words long. Like that's how detailed I am with my outlines. And then sometimes the character just decides to do whatever the hell they want and uh, I have to rewrite my outline. But that's a separate issue. So yeah, sometimes I have people help me outline though. I have a great guy who does outlining for me. So like if I just can't get my head around the story, I contact him and he he'll hit all the plot points and he like finishes off my outline into this beautiful piece and then it's like all I have to do is fill in the dots and it's just so easy like or fill in the blanks I guess but yeah and I do actually read for pleasure a lot I read about a book every three days um and (laughs) yeah I know everyone thinks that's crazy like if you look at my Goodreads profile they're like how did you read 200 books in 2020 I'm like oh because 2020 was busy and I didn't get much reading done (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's why. But um, I do read for pleasure specifically for a couple of reasons. Um, when I wake up in the morning, I have very sensitive eyes and I get migraines. So um, waking up and opening my screen will really mess with me. So I wake up and I read an actual book, like with paper <laughs> and to like kind of warm my eyes and my brain up. But I read for about a half an hour sometimes an hour until my eyes feel okay. And like my brain is like, okay. And so I try to read within the genre I'm writing in. So I read a business book and, or a writing book and a fiction book every morning. It's part of my miracle morning thing that I do. And so that's, and it's, it's a pretty long process, but it, it does prime my brain. And then in the evening, my brain is so tired and my eyes are so tired from looking at a screen. I don't want to watch TV. That sounds horrible but I do want to sit down and read a stupid book. So either something with unicorns and sex or like a children's book or something. I don't read nonfiction at night. Like in the evening I read to wind down and kind of settle my brain. So how many books do you have going right now that you're reading at one time? Let's see. According to my Goodreads profile, I'm reading one business book, uh, Derek Murphy's writing book. I'm reading a children's book for inspiration to help my daughter with her series and then a sci-fi book. Oh, and a reverse harem unicorn sex book. So five, I'm reading five (laughs) right now. And, and tell me a little bit about like, what genre are you enjoying writing the most about right now? Like what's, what's the thing that you're really the most looking forward to on a daily basis when you're like, all right, I gotta get, I gotta get down a thousand words in 10 different books. Or let me ask you that. Do you write 10,000 words of a book or do you switch back and forth and be like, ah, I got a couple thousand words on this business book, a couple thousand words on the, on the sex book, a couple thousand words here. Like what's, what's going on when you write? One book at a time. I write one book and I edit one book at a time. And I try to keep those books as separate as possible. So right now I am currently editing my editing books and I'm writing the Academy series with my daughter. So, because those are very different parts of my brain. So I try to keep the stories as different as possible because if they get too similar, I start to confuse plot lines. But as far as what I'm most excited about, my circus books, I have a shit ton of them. I have like, I have circus fairy tales coming out and I have circus horror books coming out. I have circus sex books coming out. I like, cause I was a circus performer. So um, that does, that for some reason that does not surprise time, me. 
That does not surprise me that you are a circus <laughs> performer. All right, tell just 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 give us the Reader's Digest version of being a circus performer. This is going to be a good one. I can already tell. <laughs> um, I was an acrobat and I worked with elephants and I was a belly dancer. So um, long story short, I was belly, dan belly dancing on the streets in Tucson, Arizona for money in a hat and um, a circus sideshow guy stopped me and was like, hey, uh, you're pretty good. Like, what's your training? And I told him and he's like, well, you should come audition for our show. Like we travel all the time. So you're going to have to like live in your van. I'm like, okay. So, <laughs> so I had just left the corporate world because I decided I was done. Like if you've ever seen that movie into the wild where the guy's like really successful, but he burns his social security card, gives away all his trust fund money and just takes off. I, I kind of did that exact same thing. Yeah. Except um, for he died, I got rid of everything, bought my van. Except, huh? for, except for he died. So um, he died. So we don't want that to happen to you. Yeah. No, but I mean, I'm not going to be in a school bus and found by moose hunters, but I, <laughs> I'm done living in a school bus. I'm not doing this anymore. But yeah, I kind of did the same thing. I didn't know his story back then either. But yeah, I, I left with the random person who told me to audition. And then I did that for a little bit. And then one day I, I also did like Renaissance fairs music festivals i never liked music festivals much but um the people who owned the elephants at the circus also did renaissance fairs so that was a traveling circuit too so like on and off for 14 years i traveled with these sideshows basically <laughs> so yeah. so you have plenty of research there how how many uh, do you have any books out yet in, in any of these circus series or are these some of the ones that are dropping in 2021 no. i don't even have them written yet i have I have the Mythic Freak Chronicles series that I'm working on. I've written the first three books and there are nine in that series. I have the covers. I have the first three written. I have outlines for all nine, but that's a lot more of an urban fantasy because they all have like magical powers and stuff. Um, then I have my circus horror series that is a lot more based off of my experience, but that gets into like, it's, it's a horror series. So like, this girl goes to a circus and then she gets like taken back by the ringmaster and murdered. And she goes to hell and realizes hell is a circus. And then it's like the process of like trying to recruit souls into this hell place where people are turned into dolls and there's zombies and shit. So like, that's a very different thing, but then the circus fairy tales are a little more contemporary. It's um, over the course of several years. So it starts from like the Victorian era till now because circuses have changed so much and I've researched so far into them. Like they used to have freak shows and stuff like that. And just because someone had a disformity, they would, or a disformity, wow, a deformity, they would, you know, end up in a circus freak show and those are illegal now. So it's like this, it's like, for instance, the beauty and the beast retelling is the beauty in the beast or finding the beauty in the beast. And this girl she gets into a fight with her angry lover, runs off and joins the circus and um, the elephant man ends up like finding her and like bringing her to join the circus and she falls in love with them even though he's this like hideous monster. So that's kind of, but it's more contemporary. So that, that series is very based off of my actual experience and the stories of people I know because the guy who owned the elephants that I worked with <laughs> has quite a history because he, he's, He's quite old and has been doing circuses for, oh my God, close to a century. So yeah, <laughs> he's been around for a while. He's seen a lot. Mm -hmm. 
So uh, tell me about the books that you have out right now. Like if somebody wanted to uh, scratch the surface, which ones are you most proud of that are that are currently available for order? Most proud of that are in what clear order? That are that are available to be ordered right now. Somebody could buy right now on Amazon. Okay. Uh, that you can buy right now. I would check out my planner <laughs> for sure. If you want to go in my nonfiction life. I mean, my memoir has the story. There, there's a lot of the circus stuff in there, actually. Like, if you're interested in my weird life, it's a, I mean, there's, there's some trigger warnings in there, though. Like, finding the, like, having to identify the murdered corpse of my decapitated lover. Um, like, that was, that's in there. Or, you know, like, the circus travels. Or getting sent to gay camp um, to pray the gay away. Like, that type of stuff is, so it's, it's a pretty colorful memoir. Um, and it doesn't really have a happy ending. <laughs> So just know that it's pretty intense because I get pretty graphic. Uh, but my planner is really, really what I'm probably the most proud of out of everything that I have published right now. It's called the Living an Unedited Life Yearly Planner. And it'll be based like the whole Living an Unedited Life series is coming out from there. And then as far as fiction, my owl series, the Owl Shifter Chronicles nice. that series is pretty good. If you're like, it's, it's more for like, yeah, there's no, there's not much romance in it but it's more like an urban fantasy for teenagers. It's pretty benign. It's a thriller, lots of action. If you like Harry Potter, Hunger Games, even Twilight minus the romance and stuff. Nice. And uh, just real quick, if you're bisexual, why do you have to go to gay camp to pray the gay away? Couldn't you just lie and say, no, it's fine. I'm into men. It's like 50% of the time I'm into men, but I'm into men. You, you, couldn't, get, you couldn't get out on an exception on that one? Uh, when I was younger, I didn't realize that I was bisexual. I didn't even know that was an option. So all I figured is, well, I'm in this conservative Christian school and I'm attracted to women. Therefore, I'm a lesbian. Therefore, I'm going to burn in hell. So and, um, you know, getting involved with the only African-American girl in the school. So that added more controversy. Big thing. So risque, risque. Yeah. Um, yeah, getting caught. Getting caught was fun. Yeah, you, you and I have had a long conversation about this, and I'm going to get if, if this if this podcast ever gets popular, I'm sure this will be a trigger point for lots of hate mail and negative comments. But I was joking with you. I was like, "Hey, it's cool, man. Be gay, be straight, be whatever you want to be." But at some point, you bisexuals are just selfish. Like, get down off the fence, pick one. Like, <laughs> like you're taking you're taking a pool of the good looking women out of the dating pool. You're taking a pool of the good looking men out of the dating pool. You're really screw like you're really screwing up the averages. So um, I just I just want to say that I don't even have a comment or a question there. I just want to say that that cat is selfish for being bisexual and taking people out yeah. of both dating pools. And on top of that, I'm actually so selfish because I'm polyamorous too. <laughs> so well, I don't even know what that means. I'm more than one person. I'm just some weird straight guy huh? in the suburb. I'm just some weird straight guy in the suburb. I don't even know what polyamorous means. So explain. How do you not know what polyamorous means? Okay. Jeez. All right. Ready for your lesson. So polygamy is when you're married to more than one person at a time. Polyamory is when you get involved with more than one person at a time. So like I have a boyfriend and... I'd say some of the lingo in the poly community, because it basically means loving multiple people, but some of the lingo in the poly community is you have your primary partner and some people have secondary partners. I don't necessarily believe in ranking your partners, but I mean, we do whatever we want. I am, I'd say he's probably, if I'm going to use that terminology, he's my primary partner, but I mean, 
I'm open to other boyfriends or girlfriends. So, and so is he, and we don't impede on others' relationships with other people. Uh, some people just do open relationships where they just have sex with other people. Um, other people prefer actual connections. Like I prefer real relationships with multiple people. Um, I'm just so busy that it's hard. It's really hard to maintain multiple relationships. I'm currently, I, I mean, I currently have four partners and they're all being neglected because <laughs> I work so much. And even without my daughter here, when my daughter is here, you know, it's even harder. And like a lot of them have kids and they understand it's just easier in the poly community because if I meet someone who already has a partner, I don't have to try to be everything for them. So if they already have a girlfriend or a wife that they spend most of their time with, they're not going to get butt hurt when I don't text them all the time. Cause I'm really bad about that. <laughs> Pretty much all my relationships have ended because I didn't give them enough attention because I'm bad about that. But, yeah, I, I don't yeah. even understand. Forget about any moral judgment or um, forget about any of that, which, you know, there's probably some relevant conversation there. I'm just thinking I can barely, barely keep my wife happy with as much as we work. If I had some side piece or some, other, even if she was accepting of it, if I had some other girl or guy who I was responsible for like some level of emotional well-being, it would be a mess. Like I, there's just not enough hours in the day. So it's like, I, I, again, I'm not making any judgment here other than the fact that I'm judging. How is that even logistically possible? <laughs> it sounds like so much logistically, work. <laughs> logistically, it's a lot of work. It's, it's a lot of work. And most of my other partners are not getting the attention that I know they want, but <laughs> um, I do my best. And and I'm very upfront, like at the beginning, even my current boyfriend and I, when he and I first started dating, I was very upfront that I don't really have time for you. <laughs> and I'm sorry, I will do my best to make time, but he's as busy as I am. And so it really does work. And one of the early conversations, we first started texting and he even asked me, how monogamous are you looking to be? Just a question. Like, I'm like, well, I'm not great at monogamy. And he said, oh, that's perfect. And so we ended up like, okay, this is great. So we're on the same page. And most of my relationships have been open, but um, I wasn't as busy in the past <laughs> as I was, as I am now. So in the past, like with my daughter's dad, trying to manage multiple relationships was easier because I had more time. And especially if like they want to spend time with my daughter, because I'm completely open about it with my daughter. She knows that I have multiple partners and she, and she's close with them. Like that's, you know, she's texting them all the time and stuff like, Hey, how's it going? And <laughs> trying to explain to her Mormon best friends though, <laughs> when the UPS guy pulled up and she goes running over there and she goes, Oh, Hey, look, that's one of my mom's boyfriends. <laughs> and, and her friends are like, what? Like aura. Okay. So that's when it leads to the conversation of, look, I'm not hiding who I am. And I don't want you to hide it either if you don't want to, but just know that when you have conservative Mormon friends, <laughs> that they might not take well to knowing that I have multiple boyfriends and might not want you to hang out with their kids anymore. So she's definitely learning the, like, towing the line of what's appropriate and what's not, how much you should care, and the repercussions of people not agreeing with your lifestyle. Yeah, yeah. And... I, I just have to ask some more probing questions here. Is it is it polyamorous? Probe away. Yeah, is it polyamorous? Because you have <laughs> you have decided that you are 
whatever you want to call it, such a unique person, a free spirit, a weirdo, I don't care what word you want to come up with, that you just can't get all of the satisfaction in a relationship from one other human being? Or is this more like, hey, I am keeping my options open until I find the one? Or, or some third option that I can't even think of because this is so outside of my realm of reality. I'm fairly certain I have found the one, actually. I am very happy in my current relationship. I foresee, and I mean, I might come back and listen to this podcast in a few years and be like, that fucking asshole. God, what did I like about him? But <laughs> so it's possible. But like, I do foresee, and we've talked about it, like we might get married one day and like all that might happen. Our partners will probably attend our wedding. And I, so, I mean, it's, so I do foresee that relationship progressing. It might not, that's okay too. Um, I've never been one to really believe in soulmates or looking for like the one, but I wouldn't call it a lack of satisfaction. I feel like if, if you're seeking out open relationships because you're not satisfied with your partner, I think you should address that relationship and figure out what's not working for you. Um, one person I've been potentially dating has been married for 30 years and his wife just does not want to have sex. She just, she's, she's like, I think I'm asexual. I don't want to have sex. And they almost got a divorce and they're like, okay, well, we really love each other. What other options are there? And she suggested to him, I think you should seek out being with other people. That's how he and I met. He and I met in a polyamory Facebook group actually. So um, she just said, I like, I will support you wanting to be with other people sexually. And cause I can't give that to you that's love right there. When you really love your partner so much that you want them to go be happy with other people, like that really shows something. So I, in all my relationships, they usually begin monogamous with the understanding that we will open up once we trust each other. And that is usually how it goes. It doesn't always work. <laughs> it's not a, it's not for everyone. Some people really are, I think just more monogamous than others. But I mean, let's be honest, I don't know any married couple who is 100% truly only attracted to their mate. And, and I mean, my boyfriend's sexy. <laughs> like He is so gorgeous. He's great in bed. We get along really well on like a, on intellectual level. Like we're very satisfied with one another. And part of, I think what makes me love him so much is the fact that he wants me to go out and be happy with other people. So it's not necessarily that I can't choose. It's that I don't feel that I should have to, and I don't want to choose. And I like being open to connections with others. Yeah. So I, I find you to be a pretty open-minded person, <laughs> even though, uh, even though everything you're saying, you know, people will definitely put you in a box personally, politically, whatnot. I, I find you to be a pretty open person that you and I have had some really deep conversations. So, you know, when you think about your daughter, cause Look, once you're a, a participating adult, I could care less what you do. Sleep with who you want, put whatever you want in your body. You know, I don't like the idea of being able to put whatever you want in your body if I'm paying through your for your health care through my taxes. So that's a, that's probably a different podcast. But um, but what you know, I, I think you're a pretty just uh, again open minded person that can see both sides. Knowing that your daughter is growing up in this environment, or at least growing up understanding what this environment is, what are you? most happy about as far as her understanding of this kind of alternative lifestyle and 
and what are you most worried about? Because I know you've thought about that. Like, like what parts of her exposure to all of this are you worried about that you might be getting wrong? And what areas are you like, no, no, this is the part that we're getting right? Uh, so much in both. Um, I love how open-minded she is just to lots of things. I, I like presenting her with other options to know that just because you're hearing things need to be a certain way doesn't necessarily mean this is how things go. When you read, because my daughter's an avid reader, all these fairy tales of, you know, you meet your Prince Charming. Well, wait till she gets her first boyfriend and he breaks her heart. Like, but there's like, the fact is there's other options. And she even, she watches and she's like, this looks like too much work. I only want one boyfriend. Like, I think that's fair, honey. <laughs> but I don't, I don't hide. And I think a big part of it for me, the not hiding thing. And actually my boyfriend just reading my memoir recently, it was like, so because you had to hide your first relationship with the girl you were so in love with, is that why you're so adamant about not hiding now? Like, yeah, I, I will date people who like, there's a married couple that are like, well, family doesn't know and they will not know. So like on Facebook, they're like so in love and they're the perfect little happy couple. And then they have this secret super freaky life where they're both just out fucking whoever they want and so like when I started getting involved with them realizing that this would have to be hidden like uh, it's just like it I don't hide <laughs> so that's like I really need to know that like if we're actually going to date and be in a relationship we need to be open so when my daughter wants to go running up to you and be like hi like it, it needs to be okay and they have a kid too so for instance if our children are playing together Am I supposed to tell my daughter, hey, don't say anything about my relationship with their parents because their kid doesn't know? Like, that's super messed up. So she has come to a point of, she actually said this to her therapist one day and the therapist passed it on to me. It made me so happy. But she said that um, because I'm never judgy, she knows she never has to worry about being honest with me. And you mean so dishonest. She doesn't have to worry she'll about tell me anything. You mean she doesn't have to worry about lying to you or dishonest. about being honest. Oh, okay, okay. So, so she can yeah, be totally yeah. honest with you. Yeah, so so she can be honest and know that I won't judge her or yell at her. And um, because, you know, if she's thinking something weird, because I mean, she's, she's 12 now. She's come to me with some questions like stuff is happening to her body. She doesn't know what's going on. And she's super scared to tell the other side of her family about it because they're, I mean, according to her, I don't live there, so I don't know. But according to her, she's very uncomfortable sharing things because they're very judgmental and they make her feel bad about herself. And then me, like she, like if they mention something, like if they're drinking or something around her and granted, I mean, I don't drink around her. So there's that too. So, you know, I have my own judgments, but whatever. But like if they're drinking around her and they mention something and she's like, what does that mean? And they're like, we'll tell you when you're older. She'll call me and be like, mom, what does this mean? I'll be like, oh, so that's the sexual activity, blah, 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 blah. And like, just tell her. And she, from what I've seen, has come out of all this and hopefully will continue to come out of all this with a very healthy view of openness, honesty, boundaries, sexuality. Like, I don't want her to think that sex isn't okay. So when she gets her first boyfriend and she wants to start having, or girlfriend, and she wants to start having sex, that she'll come to me and tell me so I can know that she's doing it safely. So like, I don't want her to hide it like I did from my parents. Right. So that's where I think it comes out on the good side of things. The bad side of things are incidents like her friends 
telling their parents and then she will get judged. But, you know, she's going to get judged no matter what. Yeah. Is there any part of her, I don't know, development, psyche, future relationships with people that you're that you're worried about or do you guys talk about this or, you know, cause obviously everybody wants, you know, as, as a guy, I want to be my son's first hero and my daughter's first love. And, and a, a person much smarter than me said that, Hey, every parenting book, it'll tell you a different way to raise your kids. But if you can be your son's first hero and your daughter's first love, you did something right. They're going to turn out. Okay. So do you have any concern of, you know, where she's going to end up or the things that she's going to believe or the relationships she's, that she's going to be in? No, she'll be on her own path no matter what. From my experience, because I grew up in such a sheltered manner, usually the more you shelter your child, the more they will end up acting out. Not always. Some very sheltered children end up... I I think there's a line between nature versus nurture. And I think it's... Actually, no, I don't think it's a line. I think it's a big, big fat, gray area. And uh, <laughs> like... I. There's no way to know how she will end up. And I think however she does grow into as a woman will only have so much to do with me. Also, the fact that her other parents and I are not on good terms. We don't speak. We don't interact. And we have very, very, very different ideals. She's stuck with both sides. And that's how I was raised, honestly. My parents didn't speak. They're very different people. They were both very conservative but um they were very they you know my mom hardcore democrat my dad hardcore republican <laughs> and that's why i don't subscribe to a side now because both of them were blah, blah 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 in both of my ears and i just kind of pushed all of it out and went and did my own thing and so did all my siblings like all of us came out very different than i think <laughs> our parents were expecting so i think i think she'll be good that's awesome. That's awesome. And by the way, I love the fact that you grew up in a split household where you're just disgusted by Democrats and Republicans. Um, because, oh, uh, awful. yeah, you God. and I, you and I know, <laughs> you and I both know an author and a podcaster, Chris Lockheed, who I'm a big fan of. And, and he started to kind of just kind of flesh out on his podcast, this idea of like, we need more of a radical center because I think you, the, you know, bisexual, erotic author, hippie yoga instructor, and me, the... Not a hippie. I'm not a hippie. Uh, not a hippie. I don't know. No, the first no. time I hit you, <laughs> the first time I met you, you were in a little bit of a hippie stage. Um, but I digress. No, 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 no. Vagabond? No, no, vagabond? No. Is that a good word? You called me a hipster, but hipster. not a hippie. Okay, so a vagabond hipster, is that okay? Is that, is that, I think that'll work, Maybe. huh? Maybe. Okay. Let's just say you and I are about as polar opposite as it could be in our lifestyle choices and kind of what we're doing on a daily basis. But at the end of the day, I know a bunch of the political conversations that you and I have had. It's like, oh, we're way more alike than we are way different, right? And, um, and yeah. I don't know why it is so hard to find somebody in social discourse, civil discourse, pol politics who can be like, oh, no. Kat and Scott, way more alike and probably want to see way more of the same kind of radical center versus, oh, no, we have to hate each other because you are different than me. Makes no sense. Mm -hmm. Makes no yeah, sense. Yeah, and I get along with a lot of different kinds of people, except hippies. I don't get along with hippies very well. So, okay, okay, we'll make sure we don't call you a hippie. That's actually not true. We'll, we'll make sure we don't call you a hippie no, in, the, I, uh, I, in the description. 
exactly. I, I do get along with hippies because, you know, doing the traveling thing, like when I did Renaissance fairs, there were a ton of hippies out there. And so, yeah, but it's definitely a, I don't smoke weed. I don't sit around listening to the Grateful Dead. I, like, I don't talk about how we're going to change the world and be the change we want to see and then just sit there and get stoned and play music and do nothing about it. And yeah, I'm, and I really like designer handbags. So. <laughs> oh, so you're a materialist just like the rest of us. You're yeah, there's, um, I mean, I could tour you around my place. <laughs> my daughter is so funny with, she's like, man, mom, when you come to my school concert, can you make sure you wear the, the, like, what, did, what was it? Was I had to bring the, the Louis Vuitton bag and the Gucci shoes. Like she, she like picked out my outfit to be like, that's my mom, the author. She's the CEO of a company. Like she's, it's a little embarrassing sometimes. <laughs> I don't, I'm honestly, my biggest concern with her is coming out super materialistic as opposed to like the whole open thing. Like she's open-minded. That's great. I'm worried about how materialistic she's coming out. Like it went to her head so much when she became an author, she started getting fan mail. People were finding her on social media. She had like calls coming in video chats from her fans. Like she, to her friends all the time would be like, well, I'm an author. So I'm going to go first. I'm like, oh God, what did I do? <laughs> What did I create? <laughs> so, I, I think it's cool yeah. that she's proud of her business acumen. You know, you, you probably have to temper that just like anything else. But man, I, I look forward to the day when one of my 12 year olds is like, yeah, I'm a CEO of my own, uh, you know, grass cutting company in the neighborhood. Like I, I, I want my kids to be just like you do, uh, excited and, and proud of their accomplishments. Uh, let's talk about that for a minute, because the type of books you write, you must have some really um, eccentric fans. Is that a fair word? I'd say so. Yeah. <laughs> tell us about some, tell, tell us about some weird fandom stuff. Yeah. What do you want to know? I don't know. Are you getting like, are you getting weird gifts or people getting uh, tattoos to match yours or like what's, what's the weirdest thing you've experienced from some, some fans? Oh, that's a good question. I don't think I've actually had anyone ask me that. Um, God, I think if I can narrow it down. So like the weirdest <sighs> aside from the daily dick pics in my inbox or was like the one guy who sent, it had to have been 20 different angles. Like, I don't know if you had a friend taking a picture or what. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Why, why, I, do, why do guys think that that's interesting? Like I, I, like, I love women. Um, went back when I was single, I tried to be with a lot of them and I just can't ever imagine like sitting around and be like, yeah, sweet. Got a picture of this girl's crotch. And that's, that's just really making me want to fall in love with her. Like nothing about that. I, I, I thought about this when Brett Favre was sending dick pics to his masseuse who in fairness, she was very attractive, but I'm like, Brett, you're already like the quarterback of the green Bay Packers. You're a super good looking yep. guy. You're rich as can be like, I don't think she cares whether it's hard or not, or whether it's 10 inches or nine inches, like, I don't, I don't understand how that's the thing that you think was going to win her over. Like, wh why do guys think, I just don't get this. Like, why do guys think this is the thing that's going to no. be like, ooh, Kat's getting on a plane down to Denver because I sent her 20 dick pics. Especially a stranger. Like, that's just, um, I've had, oh, so there was the guy who got, the tattoo of one of my book covers with my name on it. 
that was probably the most intense thing anyone's ever done. Like full cover back tattoo. Um, I mean, did you feel kind of obligated? Actually, isn't even out yet. Did you feel kind of obligated to sleep huh. with that guy? Because I'm just like the dick pics. That's not a turn on. But if somebody got like no. a tattoo of my book <laughs> on their back, I feel like I'd have to coach them for the, like. So I do coaching. I don't do erotic um, uh, novels. But if somebody got like a tattoo of my business book on their back, I'd be like, I, I got to coach that guy for free for the rest of my life. Like it's just like that was a level of commitment I can't even understand. <laughs> so no, no interest in that guy after you no. got a tattoo of your book. Oh, no, that that was a fail. No, that's creepy. Um, and then I, <laughs> I had I have one guy who goes to every event that I am attending or speaking at, or I don't really intend to do much speaking anymore. But he would always try to book the same flight I was on if he could figure it out. And he would always call the hotel to ask to be put right next to my room. Yeah, no, that's um, that's creepy, dangerous, weird I shit. That's because. That's not fan stuff. The, That's some uh, weird shit the, that movies are made of. <laughs> what's What's funny is I, I'm like I was hesitant to bring it up because the last two events I saw you at, he was there <laughs> and, and had gotten a room next to mine. So, <laughs> but, yeah. So um, we won't. Well, we won't. Go well, into if, that. if but, that um, if that happens yeah, again, that's... if that happens again, what we should do is we should just switch rooms. And then I'll just invite him over and just knock on the wall and be like, come on over, big boy. And then we'll just, he'll just be totally shocked when he gets a slightly chubby, 210-pound, pale, white dude instead of you. I mean, I think we should film it. I think we should do that. I think we should make him feel so uncomfortable that he never follows you around to a live event again. This is going to be awesome. Next time we're speaking at a live right. event together, we're doing it, Let's right? Do we're it. switching rooms. And I'll, and yeah. I'll just open, I'll just, yeah. I'll just answer the door naked. Do I'll answer, answer the door naked and really embarrass him. <laughs> I like it. I like it. So tell us about your not weird fans. Else. Tell us about your not weird fans. What do you What do you love about your fans? Because I I know you have a lot of them. I know when we were um, yeah when we spoke at the self publishing school, which is which is kind of funny because self publishing school, uh, which is run by our friend Chandler Bolt, they seem to have two different avatar clients. One avatar client is you and I, pretty open minded, younger, wanting to write books for you know uh -huh. business reasons, and then the other avatar of their audience is kind of like the little old lady that wants to write her memoirs because she either accomplished or lived something very interesting in her life and she wants to leave it for her grandkids. So um, I, I'll never forget this. It was like it was yesterday. You know, yeah, within, within 15 minutes, you and I had these two people show up to talk to us. One was like, oh, Kat, I love you. Can I buy you a drink? I love the, I can't even remember what series it was, talking about the book. I'm like, oh, that's cool. She's got a fan. And then another lady walked up and gave us both Christian bracelets and said that we needed to find God and that she was praying for us because we cussed on stage. And she gave both of us multiple what would Jesus do bracelets, which I brought home to my kids because I'm, I'm not anti-religious. And I was like, wow, this is an interesting cross-section at this seminar where you and I effectively just had a guy ask if we wanted to have a threesome. And then we had a, a lady walk up and say that she was going to pray for our souls. And I was like, Ooh, this is, um, this is really interesting. <gasps> I forgot about that. <laughs> and I really appreciate you jogging my memory. <laughs> I still have those. Yes, what would Jesus do? That bracelets. Is a perfect example. Yeah. Yeah. So you're a polarizing individual. So tell us about the fans that you do love the ones that aren't creepy and trying to book a flight next to you. Yeah, uh, um, some of them even send me fan art. Like they make like paintings from my characters and stuff. Um, they're they're an interesting bunch. A lot of them are.
in some into some weird things with books involving clowns, unicorns, things like that. Then I have the more normal ones. Like that was a pretty good example of the super weird ones. And then the super, you know, down to earth ones. <laughs> and they, they're very sweet and encouraging. I've recently um, unfriended close to 3000 people on Facebook. Uh, I'm going to do more, but apparently you can only unfriend a certain amount before they lock you out of your account. <laughs> so uh, I had to give up on that software. Actually, yeah, I got the software recommendation from you, actually. Yeah, I also yeah, unfriended, I unfriended a couple thousand people who I don't yeah. interact with anymore because I'm like, I'm pretty open on my Facebook, pretty transparent, probably share a little bit more than my wife would like me to. And I'm like, mm, there's a weird cross-section of people that will probably use this against me one day. I don't need to be friends with them on social media. Um, but yeah. Yeah. How many? Yeah, and if they weren't engaging, I wanted them out. So. Yeah. And or if they were being mean. How many, how many fans do you have to have? You know, we, we came up with just this random number of like authors who make six figures because they have a bunch of books and they're releasing them. Do, do, do you need to have 10 true fans that buy all your books, a hundred true fans, 10,000 true fans? Like how many, how many people would say, oh yeah, I'm a go-to reader of all of Kat's books. I would, I would say go-to readers less than a thousand. I have, I have probably less than a thousand people who I, I can kind of count on to read all my books. I'd also like to point out getting them to review. <laughs> it's just the hardest thing in the world. I have, I get all these emails like, Oh, I loved it. Da, 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 da. I'm like, cool. Could you please leave a review? Cause it would just be so great. If you really want to support me, leave a damn review. Um, my, but my email list, I keep at a thousand which is very low. I realize my goal this year is to expand my email list, but I've been keeping it at a thousand because if someone's not opening my stuff, they're not engaging, they're not really my target market. I take them off my email list. So I keep it only at the people who really engage and I don't email a lot. So when I'm telling people I'm doing something and they unsubscribe, well, they can just fuck right off like fine go away so um they're very engaged the ones i do keep in my list either they unsubscribe because they're annoyed by the fact i'm sending them stuff about unicorn books and business and grammar so like i realize it's a weird bunch of things on top of that i do i actually do some sex coaching on the side that's a separate thing and then i have like a, i have some interesting and then i have a fitness company i rep for so like I divide my email list up, but I keep it at about a thousand. So as far as those readers, I'd say there's maybe like 800. And then I have like my nonfiction readers and my fiction readers. So like my yoga books have one demographic that I don't interact with much anymore because I'm not doing that. So that's just solely off of being fed in from Amazon ads. My business books, those go to a certain, they've been former clients, other authors, and then some of those overlap with my fiction readers. So it just depends um, on, on the type of author you are. So some authors rely solely on just Amazon feeding them clients. So I wouldn't say they necessarily have avid fans, but they have so many books in different genres that there's just like a hungry audience for them and they come find them. But then there's authors, like I have a couple of favorite authors. One of them, a good example, Mallory Cooper, she does like, like, God, just gorgeous trans woman. I have such a crush on her. And, and like her wife knows because I'm always commenting on all her posts. But like, she is just such a badass writer. And 
her books, God, I don't even know how many she has, like at least a hundred. Hell, I may be way off and it's like way more than that. And I have God stacks of them, but she has like an avid, avid fan base. So her reader group is huge. So all she has to do is be like, Hey, I put out a book and everyone's like, I'm on it. And all those people review, like they get it. They have her back. So even if Amazon didn't, because she still runs ads and stuff, but even if Amazon didn't show her books to people, she'd probably be fine. <laughs> yeah. I, every time a book comes out, I read it. I've, so I've probably read hundreds of her books now. So she's got, she's basically got ten twenty thousand dollars $20,000 of revenue on demand every time she emails her list and just says, Hey, new books dropping today. It's just, it's legitimately money on demand. Thanks to her avid readers and email list. I'd say so. I can't, I obviously can't speak for her. Like I, I might actually message her after this and be like, Hey, go listen to this podcast. <laughs> cause I don't know. I, cause I don't want to speak for her, but like from what I can tell, I, cause I've looked at her author and I totally stalk her online. Like I've, cause talk about author goals. Cause she's beautiful. She's trans and has maintained this like, cause so sci-fi readers, it tends to be a lot of like middle-aged and older men. Yeah but she still has this badass audience as a trans woman. That's really fucking impressive. Like, so it's cause that's usually the demographic. Then there's people like me who, for whatever reason, I love space operas. I love sci-fi books. So I read, she tends to have, um, she tends to have same sex oriented characters in her books. They're all really unique. So she touches on a lot of topics that a lot of sci-fi authors don't. And a lot of like there's space operas, but there's a lot of like military sci-fi stuff in there. So so it's, you know, that's a genre that she's speaking to this demographic and still has a fan club like under this. So she could probably just post in her Facebook group. It's super active. She doesn't post that much in there, but all her fans do. So yeah, just to have, and I, I don't know how much she makes, but like I said, I've looked at her ranking. I know how many books she has. So, I mean, I would guess she's probably making, I mean, at least five figures a month yeah. for royalties. And she produces books like crazy too, like more than I do. Amazing. Um, yeah, maybe uh, we'll definitely link to her in the podcast and maybe you could make an introduction because uh, just the other night we interviewed a drag queen, which, uh, you know, new, news to me because I don't live in the drag queen uh, ecosystem. Uh, I didn't know that most drag queens are gay men that have no interest in becoming a woman, transitioning to a woman. It's just mm -hmm. a job where they wear women's clothes. So I'm like, oh, well, we kind of missed this opportunity because I wanted to talk to somebody who is interested in transitioning. So I need a I need a trans sci-fi author on the podcast. So um, yeah, let her know I'm going to yeah. be a big deal one day and I'd love to, to interview her and see what that's all about. Yeah, and she's very open about her transition and everything too. She's always doing the posts and stuff about like her pre-transition, post-transition. And God, she's just so freaking gorgeous and like the what i really find interesting is that her books because i've been reading since before her transition i've been reading her books back when she was he and i remember thinking there was this feminine quality because <laughs> so many sci-fi books like that yes written by a man i'm like huh i would have guessed a woman wrote this and then later on i'm like i was right <laughs> a woman did write this <laughs> turns out she you could spot them yet so yeah she's very open and pretty badass. I'm actually, cause I'm dating a trans woman right now too. And they're like the, just, you'd never, and actually one of my best friends is also a trans woman. So, um, between the, I have many of them in my life and all of them, God, you just never guess that like, like, what were you doing born with a penis? Like you're so obviously a woman when we talk, like it's, you're very clearly 
you're probably more feminine than I am. So I, yeah, I was just going to say, and I don't know, I, I, this, this could end up very insulting or it could end up, uh, you know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> but when, when you and I first met, you're a pretty studly woman. You do a lot of power lifting. Um, I'm guessing, I've not confirmed because I've not seen them or touched them. I'm guessing your boobs might be fake. One of them is, yes. Perfect. And um, and I was like, huh, this woman has a very like manly energy. We can cuss. We can talk politics. She's kind of like one of my old bros in the military. And she's pretty studly. And I think she has fake boobs. I wonder if there's a chance that she was not born a biological woman. And then we had a lot of conversations. I'm like, no, this is clearly a woman um, biologically. And then and then we confirmed. I'm, I'm and I'm guessing I just confirmed again, right? Biological woman. You gonna explain how you confirmed? Yes. And you're not the first person to ask me that, but what the fuck, man? <laughs> I'm also very tall. I am yeah. almost six feet tall on top of all that. Yeah, you're six. You're, you're a six foot you know, power lifting thick woman that talks like a dude and has some enhancements. And I'm just like, <laughs> I'm like, oh, maybe this woman was born a man. I don't know. Um, but yeah, then we had then we had sushi dinner at uh, at the speakers conference, and we realized that that was not the case. Um, but yeah. Uh, I don't, know, I don't know where I don't know where I was going with that. Oh, I know where I was going with that. Tell us about the powerlifting. Like, how does some uh, how does some lady who's had some serious medical issues, which you you touched on briefly, how do you decide? You know what? The best way I'm going to combat these medical problems that I've had is I am going to become a powerlifter. <laughs> uh, it started with yoga, actually, and I was trying to get like I have. So fibromyalgia on top of all this with nerve damage and stuff. So yoga was actually making it worse. I still do hot yoga regularly, but not like I used to. Um, I realized weight resistance was the best way to overcome cancer naturally, because one of the things that kills you so fast are the wasting effects of cancer. So I thought, well, weight resistance is going to keep me from wasting away. And so I started building. I overcame it once. It came back. It came back again. It's been this big, long journey over and over again, but lifting also started helping with my back problems, my um, fibromyalgia. I just started getting stronger and feeling better. I was digesting my food better. I was focused better. Like it just changed everything. And it's fun. Oh my God. It's so fun. I love like taking that dumbbell and like popping it up over my head. Like the snatch is my favorite. And it's just, huh. but now I'm having issues with my shoulder, the nerve damage, has taken out my strength. So like, if you were to look at my progress photos, if I flex, it looks like two different people's arms. So I'm, I might have to get surgery. I can't skydive now either, which is like a big passion of mine. So it's kept me from being able to, I'm having trouble editing. I can finally control the computer mouse again, but I couldn't like a week ago. So that was really problematic, but I got lots more writing done because I could dictate. So just no editing. So yeah weightlifting couldn't do skydiving couldn't do because i couldn't like reach back and pull the chute or reach up and control the toggles to steer so it kind of ruined my life for a little bit but um i'll be back into it <laughs> once it gets completely better but yeah it's just a lot of fun and i don't know i i think i have a pretty feminine figure like i i think so apparently lots of people think i was born a man but <laughs> so I don't know, but like I have a little waist and big hips and a really big butt. And yeah, I, well, I mean, I had to have one of my breasts removed. So yeah, now I have an implant there. And then they actually took fat from another place in my body to shape out my right one. So my boobs are even nicer now 
than they were before. Well, th <laughs> thanks, cancer. So that. But thanks, cancer, for giving you better huh? boobs, huh? Yeah, you know. So there was that. <laughs> like, at least I came out with nicer tits, and now they'll never sag. But that's cool. But no, I mean, I it was a little. It's a little hard because. I have had a lot of men complain like, yeah, you just, I don't think it's attractive when women try to look like men because I have muscles. Thanks. I thought I looked like a woman, but <laughs> I appreciate your opinion. Thanks a lot. So yeah. yeah and how, you know, recently on social media, like I said, you and, and well me and maybe you, um, we tend to maybe share and be a little bit more open on social media than some people would either prefer or they would um, suggest <laughs> or my wife would prefer. But, you know, recently there was something on social media where some people were giving you shit about body image and you were, you know, you were just posting pictures, nothing risque in my opinion, nothing inappropriate. It was just like, hey, here's my gains in bodybuilding. I'm back at it. You know, here's my abs. Here's my studly back, whatever the case may be. Um, and you got a lot of shit for that. So I imagine with your yeah. life choices, plus posting on Facebook, plus trying to be strong, feminine bodybuilder, you probably get a lot of shit and a lot of hate. And I know you're also, um, I know you're not also, you're also not quite as tough as you think you are. And this stuff gets to you. So tell me a little bit about dealing with the haters, the people that judge, you know, whether they're judging your books or they're judging your lifestyle or they're judging the fact that you put fitness pictures online. Like what, how, how do you deal with that? Cause I'm a pretty boring guy. I really am. Maybe I'm a little too op politically opinionated in public, but I'm a pretty boring guy and I get some real hate mail and I've lost some clients and I've lost some referral sources. And it's like, dude, when we sit down and just talk to each other, we get along really well. Again, radical center. We probably have 90% of stuff in common and you're, you are allowing yourself or I'm allowing myself to get pissed off about the 10% that's on the fringe. So how do you, how do you deal with that? Or do you not, I don't know, just, um, I'd love to hear a little bit about that. Actually, the worst is when people slam my books, <laughs> like that actually hurts the most when, because those are like my babies. I poured my life and soul into those. So when people shit talk my books, that, that that hurts worse than when they shit talk my body for sure. Um, I've been dealing with it since I first started really putting myself out there. Like I avoided Facebook for a long time and then I started it because I needed it for my business. I've just always drawn a lot of attention <laughs> to myself. Like as long as I can remember, it's always, and, and not like, in a, I mean, sometimes in a good way. Yeah. But not usually <laughs> like I've, I've always pissed a lot of people off and it's just, it is what it is. I mean, I wouldn't, I'm dropping things. I wouldn't say that I'm like, it's just, you know, rolls right off my back. Like JP Sears did a video recently where he was talking about all the people who are like slamming him and he's like and no seriously all those comments it like just rolls right it doesn't matter to me at all i really just don't care it's water under the bridge part of me wondered like how it, like are you if he's trying to convince himself of that too and maybe he really is just that like because i mean he keeps posting that stuff and stirring the pot i love it like i've been loving what he's been i doing love jp sears so much yeah like i have even more respect for him now than i did before and i've always had respect for him but but it just when he said that it made me think like I bet, <laughs> I bet it, it does get to you a little bit. Cause I mean, it's, it's hard when people just keep lashing out. And so after getting rid of, yeah, like I said, 3000 Facebook friends, 
oh my God, it's so much better. So like when I, that post that I did recently, the, you know, the text conversation that was like, so degrading to me and everyone was super positive. There were a few people commenting like, well, maybe you should try posting your fitness posts in a fitness group instead. And I'm like, I do, <laughs> I do post in the fitness groups and all of my friends in those groups also post their fitness stuff on their personal page age and no one attacks them. I don't know what the deal is. Like, I, I don't know. I'm sorry that I, I don't, I'm not sorry. That's the thing. So it's, I don't, I don't really have a way I deal with it. I'm just kind of used to it at this point because I've dealt with it my whole life. My family is usually kind of the worst, honestly. Um, well, that's gonna hurt. That's gonna hurt. Really. That's gonna hurt the most, right? Like, fan, like, like you said on the books, those are your babies. Yeah. Um, and I know any author in America, especially on Amazon, can have ninety-nine five-star reviews, and we just focus on the one that's negative because it hurts. Like somebody's making fun of uh-huh. your kid. So when somebody is yeah. actually making fun of their kid, a AKA your family, um, that's that's gonna hurt the most, right? Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, and they usually have the most criticism. So like, I really. My, they, they they never really kind of believed that I was going to do what I did. Like I remember when I was first building my business and my dad was kind of the only one who really never criticized me and really believed in me. And then he died. So like, of course, like the one who like was always my motivator. And he was actually like my biggest motivator. Cause he was a little farm boy in Kansas who like built his own empire. He was a badass, So he was kind of my big inspiration, but the hate mail started very, very early on, especially like, in the spiritual community, I, one of the reasons I don't like hippies <laughs> is, is actually, and again, if there's any hippies listening to this, sorry, hopefully you're a nice person. Yeah. My, but, my uh, audience is probably, is, my audience is probably not going to be the hippies. Um, we talk a no, lot about libertarianism and uh, yeah, I highly doubt my core audience is hippies. So I think you're safe insulting them on our podcast. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, the, they, they, the hippie community, like in my traveling and stuff, I remember thinking, cause I came from a religious environment where it was like, judge, 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 judge. I have to be better. I have to be better. And then into the, like the hippie environment that I realized was just as bad. And cause we called it yogier than now. So they're like, well, I think you need to check your ego right now because like your karma and blah, blah, blah. And I think you need this crystal on your throat chakra to help you heal this part of your soul because the, obviously your vibration is low. And like, I dealt with that for over a decade and it just got to me so much. So in the spiritual community, they have been the most hateful toward me. So a lot of the people I deleted recently that were being the most hateful and attacking me were my real life friends from my traveling days. So the people from the Renaissance Fair and the circus and the train hoppers that I used to really connect with that I, some of these people were at my wedding. They attended the birth of my child, like These were very close people and they all hate me now because I'm entitled now or I sold out or I said something they don't agree with. Like it's, but it's different. Everyone is pissed off about something different now. I mean, let's be honest, liberals are mostly the most upset with me right now, but I mean, you know, a lot of conservatives too, but liberals really don't like me at this time. Cause again, I piss off liberals and conservatives. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Try, try being a libertarian. Uh, Leading up to the election, all all of my conservative friends were like, you're a fucking sellout. Libertarians are closer to conservatives than they are to liberals. So if you vote for the libertarian candidate, that's really a vote for Biden. And I'm like, 
know you see logistically my vote is my vote i'm not voting against somebody as much as i'm voting for somebody and then all my liberal friends were like yeah. oh so you love trump i'm like no no i don't like trump as a matter of fact i'm not voting for him specifically because i don't like him oh yeah yeah but you're not voting for biden so you're a piece of shit because you're voting for the opposition i'm like no, no, we can just go back to language and the person I'm voting for is the person I'm voting for. I know this is a new concept, voting your morals instead of like voting against the evil orange man or the evil old man. And so, yeah, I, I feel you because I, I was getting DMs all the time and public comments basically telling me what a piece of shit I, wasn't, I was for not voting for their guy, even though I wasn't voting yep. against their guy. I was just voting for my girl because I, I just thought the woman running for the libertarian candidate more closely aligned with my views. Yeah. And why is that such a controversial topic? Jorgensen was a badass. That would have been so great. Like, <laughs> yeah, totally agreed. Well, there we agreed. go. So I, that I, would have been badass. I'm glad, I'm glad it only took us an hour and 45 minutes to get to the fact that you and I are both hated by both sides of the political spectrum. That's awesome. Just another thing we have in common. <laughs> yep, yep. It's definitely, the struggle is real. <laughs> and they don't hesitate to fill my inbox or the best is when I get like death threats or um because my daughter and I both got COVID-19 twice and so like getting all the inbox messages of how like they wish we died from it I'm a terrible influence on my child I just like people are so mean on the internet and honestly like my family <laughs> they're just as mean not on the internet so it's it's been an interesting adventure of like okay brush it off. I'm going to keep going. Oh, I'm down. Okay. Get up. I'm going to keep going. And I, that's just kind of my life. Get up and keep going. Ignore everyone as best you can. Do your thing. I love it. I think, I think that's the way to end the podcast, man, with some sage wisdom from cat wanders. <laughs> so what, what I'm going to do is I'm going to make sure Chris gets all the um, links and pen names and all the stuff that you're comfortable sharing publicly and by the way if you have turned into a fan of cat um if you've if you've turned into a big fan of cat you can do some internet sleuthing and see all the stuff that we weren't willing to talk about and all the pen names that she writes stuff under that you can't find easily on amazon and that'll be an interesting thought experiment for some people that fell in love with you during this you know couple hours um i always like to ask this last question of you know, what did I forget to ask, right? What, what's the question that you wish? Because I know you do a lot of these podcasts, you speak on stage, you're pretty public on social media with your persona. What's the question you wish people would ask you or that I forgot to ask? Oh, no one's ever asked me that before. <laughs> hmm. Um, I, I would say as far as how can others make sure <laughs> that like they're doing what they really want to this because that's something that <sighs> the business world's hard and like what i did is like people say i'm an anomaly like one of my interviews with chandler is he was using my testimonial to plug something he was doing and he said Results aren't typical, just so you know, cat's amazing. I'm like, you know, <laughs> I, I have always been one of those people who sets out and does what I set out to do. I call them, that's why I like unicorns so much. It's rare that people do that. So I'd say like what other people can actually take from my journey is 
that I have worked myself into the ground to do this. So it's not all bells and whistles. Like all these people who hate me now because I'm so and so called entitled and everything's great. I mean, it's not like my life is just as screwed up as yours is. Whoever's listening to this, if you think you're screwed up, I can guarantee you I'm just as screwed up, if not more so. So just it's different for everyone. Like if you're listening to something like this, you're probably a little more inclined to realize that there's just a ton of information out there and you have to choose what you fill your head with. And you can also take away certain amounts of things from lots of different sources. Like I went on all these online courses and all sorts of stuff and tried to take it all in and yeah, it's all useful, but that doesn't mean you should be doing it all. So try not to do too much is really, that's like the best advice I can give. And that's what, yeah. If you were to ask me, what advice would you give to someone that to not end up this way, but also to end up doing all the cool stuff you did too. I did all that stuff because I wanted to, and I went out and did it and I wouldn't take no for an answer. And I made a lot of sacrifices. It's just important not to take on too much because I still do it. I love it. Cat Wanders, thanks for being a guest on the On the Edge podcast. And just like you said, you got to keep putting out books and ads. We're going to keep putting out podcasts. And hopefully one day we'll catch something that's super viral. And then 100,000 people will come back and watch this episode and fall in love with you and your books. Cool. Let's put that out there. <laughs> <laughs> thanks. I appreciate you. I appreciate you too.